Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled The Living Nature of Mormon Covenants, Part 1, originally produced and published by Dan Watherspoon of the Mormon Matters Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Mormon Matters Podcast. This is your host, Dan Weatherspoon. I am really excited. I guess I say that I'm excited every time, but uh, this topic that we're going to cover today on the on the podcast is really a great one. I don't know why we never really thought of doing it before, because we're going to talk about covenants, and covenanting within Mormonism is such a big thing. I remember my stake a few years ago came up with goals, and one of the major goals of it was to help people make and keep covenants, and that is a focus of theirs. It's something that they can track, so I think that plays a little bit of a role and why that would be a goal for a stake. But it's also, I think, a sense for them that if people make covenants or are willing to make covenants, and then if they keep them, that they probably have some kind of good spiritual life going on. So it's not a goal that I hate. Uh, It's just simply a big one, and it is a, a big deal. And it becomes especially a big deal when people start to have a faith shift, when their journey takes them into complicated views. We so often make covenants within Mormonism when we're very, very young, starting at age eight with baptism and then the various other covenants that we make. And typically, people, you know, get married in the temple and make four major covenants at that time quite usually in their young adult age. And so here we are years later and uh, something's come along and we understand covenants differently. We understand the gospel differently. We have different perspectives of the church or something. And there's a sense that some people have that they're bound by the covenants that they've made before, that somehow or other they, they may be stuck and they, they get a sense of, of regret and sorrow and why didn't I wait longer? And there's just all sorts of complicated feelings and emotions that can come up from having been somebody who covenanted, and now it seems to you that the terms of that covenant have shifted. So I have three wonderful folks on, and uh, you'll recognize two of them, and we're going to introduce a third one, but uh, we're going to just talk about covenants in general. We're going to blow this open. We're going to hopefully make... I don't know. I, my goal is to ease, ease worries <laughs> and, and to, to make covenanting as big a, a thing as we can and to address these issues about covenanting when we're young, covenanting sort of, you know, blind, not really understanding life as we make these covenants, but, uh, but letting them still be a, a, a thing that we're at peace with and a helpful part of our journey. So that was a bit too long of an introduction, as is usual, but uh, let's get on to introducing our guests. Uh, Randy Paul, you have been a mentor and a friend of mine for years. Early on in Mormon Matters, we had you on an awful lot, but it's probably been a while since we've had you. Welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be here. I really miss the conversations. Uh, I listen as much as I can and, and love what you're doing. So thanks for keeping this up, Dan. You bet. And we love your voice and your perspectives, and, and we're excited about this today. You've already shared some things with me that you're going to talk about, and I'm, I'm really thrilled for them. Would you just quickly do a minute, minute and a half version of uh, what you do for a living and uh, any projects that you might want to alert our people to? Uh, yeah, I uh, started out as a uh, real estate developer, commercial real estate developer in midlife. I went back to graduate school, studied at the University of Chicago Committee on Social Thought, I focused on uh, religious and ideological conflict uh, of the kind that was 
what I called unresolvable or irresolvable, and became very interested in religious conflict in a practical world. In 2000, we started uh, with some colleagues, the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, that uh, aims to build trust, not consensus, between religious rivals who remain rivals, but who engage uh, their uh, serious um, differences as what we, in, in a form what we call respectful contestation uh, and collaboration also. Uh, that became background for a business that we started a few years ago called the World Table. You can check it out, worldtable.co. Uh, it's a new a conversation system for public conversations on the internet, especially we're focusing on newspapers. We hope to be up on uh, the um, Tribune in Salt Lake uh, sometime this summer. And we're on the Provo uh, Daily Herald right now, going to several hundred newspapers, we hope, this fall. Um, with this effort to take conversation on the public realm, not just on religion or politics, but on any subject, and create communities of people who feel they can have trustworthy conversations in public. Yeah, there's, there's nothing worse than the comment section in the newspaper as far as people being irresponsible. So uh, what you're doing there is very much needed. Yeah, that's uh, that's another topic, another time. But yeah, that's what I'm doing day to day. I'm 70 years old, have five children, 15 and a half grandchildren, and uh, I'm loving life. I'm glad to be here with you all. Well, may that get going along with everything in your foundation. You've done amazing work. and Thank you, friend. Thank you, Dan. Welcome back, Jennifer Finlayson Fife. We had you on a few months ago, and we talked about raising children and uh, kind of you know, meeting their needs as they grow up uh, spiritually and all that stuff. But you've been on a golf oh, 15 other times, maybe. I don't know. We'd have to count them <laughs> yeah. up. But uh, you're a welcomed and a valued commentator. And uh, catch us up a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. So I'm in Chicago and I'm a, a marriage therapist. I work primarily with LDS couples and individuals around relationship and sexuality issues. So that's what I do. And then I teach online courses to the LDS community and present occasionally. And, um, and I just like conversations around the intersection between psychology and theology. That's kind of my passion. So, yeah. so yeah. Well, you're wonderful, and I, I, you're, you know, in addition to all those other credentials and things, I just love the 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 really um, down to earth theology and the and the great perspectives that you bring to just like, okay, hold on, <laughs> why are we thinking this? <laughs> you know, there's, there's another way to approach this, and I think it gets us out of lots of different uh, uh, troubles that we find ourselves in. So, thank you all, and I, I always value Thanks, you on even these these big topics. You know, not thank just you. the related ones. Uh, Joe Stanford, welcome to the show. I want to let, let everyone know that uh, you were the one that proposed this topic, so thank you for that. Uh, give us the rundown. You get to speak a little bit longer if you want to about what you do and your background and, and what brought you to this topic. Well, thank you, Dan. It's a real honor to be on this uh, podcast. I've been a fan for a long time, and and so it's a little bit unreal to actually be on it. Um, I don't have any special expertise in this topic, except it's something that I've wrestled with in my own life and thought about for a long time. And as you know, proposed it, as you mentioned, 
Um, I uh, am a temple active Mormon, but have gone through a number of transitions in my faith and understanding over, uh, I don't know, 10, 20, or actually my whole life, if you really look at it, but in the past 10 years in particular, I suppose. Um, And also, uh, in my um, day job, I'm a family physician and a medical researcher, work with uh, fertility, a restorative approach to fertility and natural family planning. Um, Because of the work I do in that research, I've developed a lot of relationships with um, Catholic colleagues, and that's led to a lot of interesting conversations that go beyond just uh, the research I do and uh, a lot of ex- a lot of additional appreciation for other for that particular religious viewpoint as well. I hope uh, broader um, religious uh, perspectives as well. So um, I've found myself crossing a lot of borders in my own uh, journeys and expanding a lot of borders, and uh, that's uh, kind of related, I think, to this uh, topic. Um, I I'll, I guess I'll also mention that I'm. Uh, um, father and grandfather, and um, that, that's me. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, we'll get to know you a little bit more as we go, and I'm excited about that, putting you out in front of everybody. I want to go to you first. You heard my little framing. It was a bit rambly as usual, but I wanted you to kind of set forth what were your main goals? What What kind of areas did you want for sure want us to talk about today? Sure. Let me just uh, state a a few of these as questions. Um, the original question that I emailed you was, how does one understand and honor covenants made in the LDS Church and baptism temple and so forth as one's understanding of moral authority evolves and shifts from being institution-centered to being centered in an individual relationship with the divine? Um, a related question would be, as authority shifts in faith transition, does the concept of covenant become obsolete or does it expand? And for me, I would say right now it, it expands. It, I wouldn't say it's obsolete, but some people would feel maybe it is and that would be worth discussion. Um, but I feel like as our relationship and understanding of God expands, our understanding of covenant also needs to expand. Um, I would say the covenant uh, covenants are with, for me at least, are with God and not with humans, uh, at least not in a um, human uh, uh, institutional limited sense. Um, of course, God is in other people as well. Um, and as uh, we consider all people that are, uh, all people are on a faith journey, I believe, if one sort or another, whether they define it that way. And I believe we need to respect covenants and other faith traditions as much as in our own. And I think a corollary for that is that uh, for some people, a transition out of Mormonism needs to be respected as much as we respect and honor people who transition into Mormonism. Um, And then I guess the final thing I would throw out there to come back to, I think, is that a covenant that is based on fear is not a valid or a lasting covenant, whereas a covenant that is based on love, I think, is the valid and lasting covenant. Um, So how can we see covenant as a relationship uh, that is based on love that is maybe Johannine rather than Deuteronomic, perhaps one way to frame it, um, and as relationship and not transactional? Wonderful. Thank you so much. Jennifer and Randy, um, without going into 
the actual discussion yet. Are there anything that you'd want to do to react to Joe's questions or to add some more of yours just as we, as we lay out, you know, kind of areas that we want to cover today? I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, since I'm talking in front of a marriage therapist, you'll probably enjoy this. <laughs> um, this, this topic became extremely important to me when my wife and I were having deep marital problems um, and had so drastically offended each other that um, I felt at one point, and she felt at one point, there was no way of going forward. And it, it occurred to me that I had to decide whether I was a static human being who had made a promise, a static promise, and would go forth in my loyalty to her and to the marriage meant that something had to be constant and remain. And I looked at myself and I looked at her and I realized we had changed in 15, 18 years a lot. And I thought, you know, we will probably continue to change. So who am I? Who am I committed to? Why do I need to be stuck in this current problem with her if there is a desire and a possibility of becoming different people? And I'm not going with the religious term of new creatures yet, but that's interesting. Um, and it really was a liberating moment to say, uh, where are, what are we committed to in marriage, even in an eternal marriage? What is, what is identity? I almost went into a Whiteheadian, you know, crisis of what is, what, what is continuity itself? Is it anything but a history? Are we always changing? Can we ever say we are committed to someone or are we, Mm. Are are we, with a long E, committed to another person who might be completely different in our relationship down the road? So that was a a deep moment for me. And then Mm. theologically, I also thought about the problem of the final judgment and who is being judged at the final judgment. If Mm. the person is totally repented, go all the way, you know, pick your worst character. Um, If the person is totally repented, why is there any need to look back at a a judgment on his or her life? Is not that person at the moment of judgment the only thing that matters in in a time fashion? So what is a covenant if the person who makes it is no longer the person who keeps it, who is no longer the person judged in it. So that idea of continual motion became something that was fascinating to me in my life and had very deep ramifications. So that's my deep interest in this conversation. I'll be curious to see where we go with that kind of social psychological identity issue um, yeah. with respect to promises all the way, well, all the way, to, all the way up to God, right? Is God yeah, the yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of the nice things uh, when you said you almost went Whiteheadian and what is continuity, the good thing about Whitehead is it's all about relationality and relations. And so, and that's what Mormonism is. God wants us in relationship with God's self, uh, whatever this divine Godhead is. We're all invited to be part of it, to be partakers of the divine nature. And as we evolve, our relationship is naturally going to evolve. Our covenants are naturally going to evolve. Uh, and so you're right in the heart of this whole thing, at least I think on the solution end of it <laughs> you know we there's still some problematizing that uh, we'll, we'll need to get to first but i'm excited to go in those areas thanks brother 
Thank you. Jennifer, where would you start uh, with saying, uh, I hope we get to talk to this? Gosh, I mean, I was unprepared for how fascinating this was going to be, actually. <laughs> I just, <laughs> just hearing the framing that uh, each Joe and Charles have brought up is just really interesting for me. I think, um, you know, I haven't had in working with my clients as much of the struggle that you're speaking to, Dan, which is, you know, now that I'm seeing my faith differently or God differently, that I'm worried that God's going to hold me to a yeah. promise that I made in a naive state. That is, but more, I, I hear that yeah. all the time. Yeah. You hear that. See, I don't hear that as much because I think at least maybe I'm just not picking up on that angst. What I'm hearing more is people who feel some sense of, I mean, I do hear it in the way that was brought up around marriage, you know, and I made a commitment and a promise at a state where, you know, I'm not sure that's what I would choose now. Or I, how do you make a choice in a context that's already so largely determined that is true to that promise? Or what does it mean to be true to it in this time? I think another experience, and this is maybe not where this discussion would go is that sometimes the anger and the regret around the, the implications of a feeling socially pressured into covenants and how it shaped your life and then has ramifications for the way you live currently. Um, I don't hear as much around people saying, you know, is God going to hold me responsible for a promise that I no longer think feels relevant or meaningful to me because maybe their notion of God is also evolving or shifting. But um, except for as it relates to the sort of the present of, you know, marriage and relationship to, um, to the church and to, you know, people, I guess, maybe is where I, I experience it more in the work I do. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's start where Jennifer is playing. Um, I know that this is at least part of how I framed it to you originally. I want to get to everything else you guys talked about too, but let's give voice and honor the feelings that are coming up uh, for a lot of people who on their faith journey, whether it's like you said, Joe, as we, as we delve in the point, I'm moving from external authority to my own internal authority whether it's simply if it's that move or it's just I have now new understandings about the church. And yet at one point in my covenanting life, I covenanted to give everything, to consecrate everything to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to the kingdom of God and to the building up of Zion, I believe is the basic terms there. And it is uh, it is something that, you know, their their life has brought them, at least in that moment, to crisis and they're not feeling great <laughs> that at age 20 or age 24 or whenever it was that they made that covenant. Jennifer brought up the issue of, you know, sometimes you're, you're in the temple and the whole family's there and you really weren't prepared. You didn't know what the covenants were going to be. And so you did feel some pressure to say yes when you hadn't really thought about it. I know a lot of women have shared that the, the covenant as, as it is worded historically within the, in the um, endowment, as well as, as it currently is, they're still a little bit less problematic, but still is. They've been surprised by the wording there when it comes to obedience, uh, especially related to their spouses. So there's lots of things that right. go on and we need to honor this, that I have made a covenant. I'm now 
feeling like a different person, like Randy was saying. I'm at a different stage in my life, a different understanding. And maybe I need to, one, uh, you know, imagine a God, and hopefully we're having experiences with a God who is like this. We need to imagine a God that, of course, would expect you to grow, would expect these shifts and things like this to come along, would encourage you on this journey into complexity and uh, finding for yourself and all those kinds of things. So number one, I would hope that it would we would feel like we're in relationship with a living God, that we covenant with a living God, and we wouldn't worry about this sort of thing. But the other thing is, I hope that we're not still thinking that when you're bound, when something happens in the temple and you're bound or you're sealed, there is room in our theology, and I want any of you guys to talk about this who who know the, the, the theological thing. You know, whatever's bound on earth is bound in heaven. That doesn't happen immediately, is at least my understanding, right? Uh, Jennifer, Randy, Joe, um, when you make a covenant... You, you do make a covenant, but it's it doesn't really bind you. You're not really bound to it, or it's really not a binding covenant until much later in your life, right? As you've sort of lived up to its promises and to its different things. And so there's nobody who's kind of stuck, is at least my understanding of that. How, who wants to give better yeah, language could, to that? Could I, go down one, could I go down one tangent for just a second? Sure. I would just like to say that, that um, I think one thing that, we could do a lot better of in within the church. And I think I have seen some improvement, but not complete is to, is to be upfront about what the covenants are in the temple, particularly, particularly for um, people in advance. I mean, I, I, when I went through the temple at 19, I had, I wasn't, surprised by some things. You know, I expected a covenant for chastity, for example, that had been taught enough. But uh, I was surprised by other things. Um, and, and there's really no reason for that. There's no reason that the specific exact covenants could not be spelled out in advance. And I think usually now some, I mean, I know for my uh, boys, as they've grown up, and the ones that have decided they're going to the temple, I have sat down and um, tried to be really specific about that. But uh, I think even in, you know, Sunday school and temple prep classes and things like that, um, that's one thing that still could be improved. I agree. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. It, otherwise it feels manipulative, you know, I right. think for and, many people. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's, there's a phrase that there's we sometimes hear, covenant by ambush. You know, yeah. in other words, I, I was there and all of a sudden it's in front of me and I, I feel ambushed because I really didn't know this ahead of time. Right. And yeah. there's language in the ceremony that does uh, can be interpreted as manipulative as well emotionally. So if you, you know, and if you know in advance, that's what you're doing. It's not an issue. But if you don't, it can be. So, mm-hmm. Randy, you're about to jump in. Yes, I think uh, as a sociologist, you would have to say everyone is brainwashed, right? Everyone is, quote, forced before they know what they're doing to make certain commitments in their life. Uh, You know, that's what socialization does, right, is we're children. And uh, you can't get out of that conundrum. That's that's the very interesting thing about I'd like to discuss this sometime in our conversation. The whole idea of the veiled existence, the design of being literally having your past history eradicated, we're amnesiacs, and 
then thrown into a situation where the the circumstances around us, the environment is so potent on our formation that how can we say that we're responsible for anything we think and feel? You know, it's 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 a very interesting design that somehow this idea of radical freedom, a Mormons call it free agency, still exists within this pattern. And that the interesting thing seems to be to prove us herewith what we do in this unbelievably difficult and and uh, totally uh, questionable uh, circumstance with our our freedom such as it exists and so i would i would just say that when i talk with people who have this issue i try to back up and say hold us hold your horses hold your horses don't blame the church don't blame anybody blame the world blame <laughs> civilization you know, mm-hmm. the whole design is totally screwed up if you think we should always make our decisions sure. with knowledge in advance, right? It's- right. Or some fast, yeah, I, I mean, I agree and I disagree at the same time. I agree that we're always in a social context and we're always making choices and the idea of of free will is limited by the context in which any choice is asserted. But at the same time, there's a difference between trying to really offer someone the ability to choose for themselves versus a kind of uh, social constructs that's pressuring and for which there's a cost for not agreeing. And so I think that is to say, I think many people justifiably, you know, just as we're speaking to the, I think Joe was saying the idea that we could take pains to give more information to people before they make those covenants in the temple that is at least one way of people acknowledging within themselves that I wasn't manipulated into something, which I think helps to see it as a spiritual rite of passage, not a kind of social, um, what's the way, you know, a, a ritual of sort of pressuring oneself into legitimacy into the group. Great, great insight. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Sure. I share that. But I find it still problematic to say what's the difference at the, at the deep level. Uh, you could say, well, we're all manipulating each other by this tonality of openness and giving people up. In other words, I'm, I'm being a little philosophical here, I grant, because I do exactly what Joe yeah. and you are suggesting to do. In fact, that's how I try to live with my friends and family, too. Yeah. But I try to step back and say, even that, the tone of comfort and giving people a feeling of options Yes, but, but I, they're making but I guess you're can, right, right. But I would say you're making it more complicated than it meaning if you feel like a spouse is manipulating you and they are, okay, it has very different ramifications on the relationship than if you understand you're making choices with your spouse in a, in a construct that you both share. So that is to say manipulation is a real thing, which is not the same thing as saying manipulation is the opposite of completely free uh, will uh, it, that's decontextualized. Do you understand okay. what I'm saying? Yes, so I, I think not key, I do think it's important to keep track of the very real experience of somebody withholding information in order to pressure you in a particular direction. Amen that, to that. Get it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Well, before we leave that, do any of the three of you have 
an ex- the experience in your own life of sort of having to wrestle with that particular sense of, ooh, was I manipulated? Was I pushed? Was I pressured? Was there some trade-off I was making that I really wasn't quite ready to make? And if that was something in, from your own life, um, you know, what what were the keys that helped you push through it? Because I have a feeling it's it's very real for many people but I, I hope and I trust that it's not like a, a place where you land for a whole long time. You know what I mean? It seems like the kind of place that you have to move on from either completely away or somehow through. I, I know for myself, uh, Dan, that when I went on a mission and I went through the temple, it was it was a fully trusting move because I I had a lot of questions and and doubts about my faith and my belief, but I wanted to kind of um, sacrifice in the sense of trust and move towards and do what people that I loved and trusted were telling me was good for me. And so when I went through the temple, I had the experience of, you know, seeing my mother there, my young women's leader was there who was good friends with my mother and I'd grown up next to, and they were crying tears of joy and I don't think I'm overstating to say that I felt rage. Mm. <laughs> I felt <clears throat> really uh, very complicated feelings around what I was being inducted into and the promise of deference and the kind of, and I'm not like a rageful person. I mean, I'm not, in fact, I'm very much somebody who sort of tries to make things work and to, to see the goodness in things. And I felt so, um, kind of disrespected in the sense of not by my mom and young women's president who I think were really offering what they thought was going to bless my life, right? Had blessed their lives. But I did feel like I wasn't given information clearly enough at the get-go. I I was being sort of sucked into a set of promises that I wasn't sure I could back up except for to just kind of throw my own judgment away and trust. And I kind of felt like I had to erase myself in order to get through it. And that's what I was being asked to do. And that really distressed me about who God was, what I was being asked to do. Was God behind this? And is this what God was seeing as virtue? Or was there something off in my experience of this? Meaning, was there something I was tracking in it that was not okay and problematic? And you know, as a missionary, I also saw elders and people, you know, t- do manipulative things uh, to sure. get members of the church to, to I mean, uh, investigators to join and sort of in the name of goodness, because we're getting them inducted into a set of promises that are is going to bless their life. And for me saying, wait, that's not the God that I know. That's right. not how I think about yeah. how we're in relationship to God. So, I, so I, was the it short a, answer is yeah. for me, I will, go ahead. I mean, I did, it did evolve for me. It did pressure me up against this question. And I have a lot of thoughts about it that I could get to maybe later. I don't know if I need to give it all away right now, but I, I, sure. I, I come to see it as I believe in a God who values my willingness to submit to something to try it out, to understand it, to kind of learn from it, to be willing to yield enough to learn. Um, I, but I believe in a God that values that for the sake of learning wisdom. But it's not commitment to an institution, to a person. It's commitment to a way of living. 
it's a commitment to God and godliness, right? So I don't even talk to people in couples therapy about marriage as a commitment to a person. It's a commitment to a set of values, to a way of being in relationship. And if you can't be in relationship in that way with this person, it may no longer be a virtue to be in that marriage, for example. So um, anyway, I, I, I'm kind of maybe going well, thank 70 you. steps ahead. Thank you yes. for sharing. Wow, that sure. was powerful and, and so, so important for us to hear. To just pick one thread out of it, it sounded like for you that the way through was to really rethink God rather than yes. the rest. And and I think that's that's my sense of what happened with me too. I just I just learned for myself who this God was and worries about yeah. you know, those other things just kind of uh, disappeared. You know, I didn't have a sense of a God that was a taskmaster or, uh, you know, somebody who didn't expect me to grow and change. So, yes. so wonderful. Joe or Randy, do either of you want to share an experience like that? I, I'm guessing Joe, maybe somehow you had this in your background a, a little bit, otherwise you wouldn't even have proposed this topic today. I don't, I don't know. Am I guessing wrong? Yeah, that's a, I, I don't have a, the dramatic, um, or intense single you weren't full experience. Of rage. <laughs> no, I was not full of rage at, at, <laughs> at that point in my life or an, another point. But I have had plenty of times I've questioned um, questioned whether uh, I was manipulated, um, and I, I I agree that the fundamental um, uh, evolution or development uh, or growth that has made it um, a change in perspective in looking back is to develop uh, a, and and deepen that relationship with God to understand uh, to grow an understanding of of um, who God is or who I understand and my relationship to God and that and that is necessarily connected also to my relationship to others you know king benjamin relationship to god and relation to others are are really not separable in uh in one sense but 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 it does allow you to break away from uh cultural trappings or things that you can at least consider the possibility that some of the way you have interpreted something or the way something may have been presented is uh, comes from um, a cultural uh, uh, baggage that uh, is not necessarily at the core of who God is, um, even even in our um, uh, most uh, central rituals and and uh, scriptures. Terrific. I will I will pitch in and make it a a four way tie by saying that most of my problems. Uh, have been um, given purpose, never finally resolved, but given purpose by going back to, you know, this is life eternal to know God um, and to rely on, I think, the fundamental, what I see anyhow, Joseph's fundamental insight that the... Uh, Language of a sovereign um, does not work for Mormonism. Uh, language of a friendly parent who is also an eternal equal 
uh, that works for Mormonism. And when you put God in those terms, all of a sudden, all the interpretations we place on our socialized idea of Mormonism, we were given the liberty to go back to, quote, fundamentalism, which is we have a loving, heavenly set of parents, at least. We have a, a loving, uh, heavenly friend, at least. And that part of the deal we're in down here was a collaborative, non-manipulative agreement in pre-mortal life that we would jump into something that God or the gods saw to be beneficial for us. And we took a great trusting risk in doing that. I, as I told Dan earlier, my theology says that even Jesus took the trusting risk. There's that little hint in, I think it's Alma 6, where it says the spirit knoweth everything. I translate that to Jesus knew everything in the pre-mortal life, theoretically. Right. But, but afterward, when he came down here, it was, can you pass this cup from me? Or why have you forsaken me? In other words, there was a different experience in, in the rough. And I do believe even God doesn't know what's coming next in that sense. And so God has to trust um, that this is where I'm going with this. His, his or her or their desire to continue in relationships of love. That's, that's where the risk is. Mm -hmm. They have to trust themselves that they will continue in, re in desire to relationships of love no matter what comes and no matter, you know, so that's, that's where I wanted to leave it. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Uh, even Jehovah <laughs> was yeah. uh, surprised at what he covenanted. Yeah. Jehovah in some ways covenanted yeah. blind the way right. many that's of us feel I'm... like we have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that, and that's a wonderful framing. I uh, I want to take us, unless anybody jumps in and says, hold on, I want to keep going in this nexus. I want to take us, if we're ready, out of the um, the question of God, uh, because I, I just would hope that anybody who's listening would just uh, know that you're not stuck with the view of God that you had when you were a child, that if you came, Jennifer, you could speak to this. I know that a lot of people, their ideas of God are, 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 you know, formed with often through their relationship with their own parents, especially yeah. in Mormonism with their male parent, because we think of God primarily as male, even though our theology has it much bigger and all that kind of stuff. So just know that it's fair game to, change God. <laughs> so I want to go to now the person part of it. I want to have us feel good about ourselves as changing persons. It would be kind of the direction I want to go. Is anyone needing to talk more about God before we do that? Can I just say one, sure. one comment on Absolutely. that, Dan? I mean, I think that's fundamental to our theology, which is that, you know, part of our earth life is to come to know God, uh, not as in, okay, he's a white guy who... <laughs> <laughs> like not in that sense, but you come to know God through your action. And that, you know, something I said in Sunday school recently was we're all worshiping false, a false God in this classroom. That is to say, we're all worshiping some um, limited notion of who God is based on our own development. And so our development into more loving wise creatures creates more capacity to really know God's heart. 
or part of what I think is virtuous about what or valuable about what happened to me the first time I went through the temple and really I, wrestling with who God was on my mission was that it was the conflict was pressuring me up against this question of who is God. And um, that was a part of my own development was to come to refine and have, I think, a, a truer view of God through that wrestle. So I think it's not just, hey, it's going to happen. I would say it's like fundamental to our development because our notion of what goodness is and what godliness is shifts as we evolve. Amen. Amen. Super good. Yes. Anybody else on God before I kind of shift the focus to us? Okay, we're going for it. Um, okay, here's here's another thing I occasionally hear, you know, in the blogs or in people who are in a faith journey. They'll, for instance, say, you know, not only did I feel like I covenanted blindly, I, you know obviously in good conscience, but I went into the mission field and I converted people and then they entered into covenants most likely blindly too. And there's guilt and there's uh, worry and there's wishes that, you know, every single positive, you know, every single possible question or, con you know, uh, claim against the church were laid out for them so they could have fully decided that Mormonism was truly a good thing to share with others. There, there's just sort of this, they're full of regret over, um, you know, ha kind of acting like you said, Randy, covenanting blind, you know, the, the, just this. And I, on the other hand, you know, I want to honor that. I want to validate that. And that's, uh, there is, there are, I guess there's times in my life where I really wish I hadn't taken somebody down a, a certain path. Uh, it's never been related to Mormonism that way, but I certainly understand that particular impulse of, dang, you know, I was kind of the blind leading the blind here and I sure wish I didn't. But um, I guess I want, I want to speak positively about us I want to I want to champion the idea of us as covenanters, and uh, and why that's such an empowering and uh, a worthy thing. Have I given enough for any of you to jump off on that idea? What is it that's good about somebody like us who was willing to enter covenants? Why is that an important thing for us to embrace uh, in this world? Has, has anyone ever done much thinking on that? Yes. Run with it. Uh, I remember Hugh Nibley years ago um, said, why do we vow at marriage? Why? What good is a vow? Why promise? If it were, if, if it were the good and natural thing to remain married, then we wouldn't have to talk about it. We'd just do it, you know? Why the big deal of the vow? Why the social openness to it? And he came back and said, because it's hard to stay married, both biologically and socially. And he went into all this. He wasn't a sociologist, by the way, but he was a very interesting um, uh, discourse he made on the fact that the vow is there because of experience of the past. People know how difficult it is to hang together loyalty, loyally in a group when things 
when when the you know what hits the fan, whether you're in a business partnership, a marriage or on vacation with a group that wants to go in different directions. I don't care what it is. Uh, it's a very interesting idea that there is some social value. You want to call it evolutionary value to making a vow that is, quote, honored, that you are honored for keeping the vow for the benefit of the group, right? It could be soldiers who vow, the, the Marines, you know, they say, all the studies show the Marines don't care about politics. They don't care about their country. They care about each other in the platoon. They vow to take care of each other. Anyhow, I wanted to just say that there is something about making a promise and having the keeping of the promise, something that is socially honored, that is yeah. evolutionary, a strong evolutionary uh, benefit. Groups that can do that will beat groups that can't. Nice. Jennifer. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, and I would say something you said in there that's really important is, is you make a promise to act in a way that is to the benefit of the collective. And, uh, you know, I think that pressures are functioning up, you know, that even though times are hard, I did make a promise about to love this person or yep. to, you know, to love these people that, you know, I've promised God to love his children, even though they're all bugging me, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I and I feel superior or whatever, you know. So yeah. I think it definitely pressures our functioning up. And I think we can also, I'll just throw this in there. We can talk about it more later if you want to. But I think that we can also exploit the virtue of promise and covenant to maintain loyalty to dysfunctional realities. Amen. And to, yeah. And to keep an entity alive that needs to die. <laughs> mm. Right. Yeah. Something that's not good for the group. Right. So yeah. that, you know, it can be a self-serving yeah. function right. as well. Super. Yeah. Joe. Well, this, th yeah, this goes to the uh, polarity of loyalty and integrity, where uh, integrity, you know, to your own principles and understanding and then loyalty to a spouse, to a church, to a group, uh, to family. Um, I think in the fully developed sense those uh, those things complement each other and don't um, don't uh, contradict each other but they certainly can be in tension and they're definitely going to be in severe tension when one or the other the, of them is um, misplaced or not fully in tune um, and you know that's part of our isn't that part of why we're here on earth to figure those kinds of things out and and learn them over our, our lifetime. Uh, and maybe for some people, they have to take a path that looks different than ours in making those, um, uh, you know, managing those uh, tensions and polarities. But uh, you don't throw one or the other out. You don't say, well, I have to erase myself and my own integrity, you know, mm -hmm. to be loyal. I have to, you know, uh, if, if I were there at Mountain Meadows, would I have to obey, you know? Uh, right. I mean that's that's a very complicated question that could be its own discussion, but but you know it, or in Nazi Germany or some of the you know dramatic examples you could think of, but at the same time, uh, uh, I you know you don't just throw out loyalty either and say well you know my integrity demands that I um, set myself apart from anyone else. So that's not um, that's not evolutionary what we who we are as humans and it's not spiritually who we are as children of God.
And I would just say to that, Joe, you can't have integrity and neglect the group, in my opinion, because it isn't evolutionarily and divinely appropriate for us to do it. So some people can exploit the notion of integrity as much as they can loyalty to say, well, my integrity is to self-serve here (laughs) as opposed to, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I think Mormons theologically can, let's retrieve God for just a minute, go backwards and say, for Mormons, God is not a self. God is a couple. God is a family. God is a council. God, uh, gods are only gods in eternal relationships, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as an individual. We have always, worlds without end backwards, been in social conditions of intelligences. So I would agree completely there that integrity as an idea of this radical individual is nonsense to both social psychology and to Mormon theology. But there we go. Mm, Love it. Love it. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here. 